Hello and welcome to the first ever Great Day podcast. And today is a great day to be joined by my co-host, Caleb Price. My guy, how's it going? How's it going, everybody? And welcome to the first episode of A Great Day Pod. I am Caleb Price here with the host, Sam Humphreys. And if you know, you know that today is indeed a great day to have a great day. So, Caleb, since it's the first ever inaugural Great Day podcast, I think we should introduce ourselves. Caleb, tell the audience a little bit about yourself. For those of you who don't know me, which is probably everybody listening, (laughs) um, I'm from Midwest City, Oklahoma, born and raised. Went to Swartz Elementary, go Stallions. (laughs) <laughs> and from there, I went to Carl Albert High School, home of the champions in 5A. And I played baseball, basketball there. Uh, my pops is the basketball coach there at Carl Albert High School. He's been there since 2006. Um, I have an older brother. I'm the middle brother and a younger brother. All three of us played baseball at Oklahoma Christian University. Um, from spanning the time between 2000 and six all the way until my little brother just graduated in 2020 so we had a price there for about 14 years so we're very proud of that um i'm a avid golfer um big golf fan love sports thunder basketball is kind of my passion ou football i'm a dallas cowboys fan um and i also have a little sister that will be a senior at Oklahoma Baptist University. She plays basketball. She's a hooper, hoop star. Um, But yeah, man, I just love sports. Um, Love to sit and talk about it. So I'm excited about this pod to sit and shoot it with you. Um, And excited to get going. We have a a very special guest here on our first pod, and I'll let you introduce him here in a second. But uh, go ahead and give us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so originally I'm from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. And uh, grew up around broadcasting. My dad is a sports broadcaster himself and uh, moved from Oklahoma City to Edmond, Oklahoma in sixth grade and then eventually went to Edmond North High School. Shout out to all my Huskies out there. Um, And then after that, uh, ended up playing golf at the University of Tulsa under legendary coach Bill Brogdon and then ended up transferring to the University of Missouri, Kansas City, where I had a great four years there. and um, The ruse. The ruse, man. Rue up. Uh, and then now I am graduated from college and excited to, getting, excited to be getting into a little bit of pro golf and maybe when this quarantine is over. But going to get into some pro golf and also get into some broadcasting, which I've had a love and passion for for a long time. Kind of runs in the family. Shout out Craig Humphreys. Shout out to the hump man. But uh, I really just am really excited about this project. Uh, The Great Day podcast. If you guys want to like and subscribe on wherever y'all get your podcast, it would be much appreciated. Follow me at Sam Humphreys 34 on Twitter and at Killer Price one on everything. Yep. And on Instagram and on everything. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce our guest who is maybe the king of drip. He's got a lot of drip. Got a lot of drip. 
a pioneer in so many different aspects of sports and entertainment. One of the main voices of sports over who knows how long. Decades. At least. least. We're going to introduce my good friend, Skip Bayless. Let's go. Today, we are grateful to be joined by one of the most respected voices in sports over the past four or five decades. Honestly, a true legend in every sense of the word, whether we're talking about a columnist, an author, a radio host, and now the star of the TV show Undisputed on FS1. It is none other than Skip Bayless. Skip, thanks for joining us today. Sam, it's my pleasure. I really appreciate it. And to give the listeners a little background on me and Skip's relationship, Skip has been a friend since he met my dad in seventh grade at Taft Junior High in Oklahoma City at basketball tryouts and, um, in 1964. And, you know, they became best friend and best friends and have been friends ever since. And um, Skip, to me, is one of the most kind-hearted people you'll ever meet. Um, when I was going through my battle with cancer, no one, honestly, no one... Uh, no one reached out more, and no one texted and called, and could been could have been more of a nice, a kind-hearted human being during that for me. And um, Skip, I thank you for that. And uh, I just wanted to bring him on um, today and let everyone get to know him a little, per- little more personally. And uh, um, I mean, he debates he debates sports every day, but um, we just wanted to bring him on and let you guys get to know him a little better. And um, Skip, thanks for joining us. You are welcome. And again, you and your father and your mom and all your siblings and your whole extended family, obviously Craig's brothers, all met huge uh, parts of my life, parts of my upbringing, all had um, played big roles in it. And as I think you guys could appreciate, it's rare that you meet somebody in seventh grade and they become your best friend for life. Uh, a lot of my friends now here in Los Angeles, as, as you mentioned at Fox and the friends I have here who I work with don't have friends from seventh grade. It's just rare. And yet your dad and I connected and I'm, I'm not even sure why or how we just shared a great love of sports. And we both shared uh, a belief in God that I think pulled us together. And we fell apart a couple of times, as you do, as you start to grow and you go in different directions. But we always came back around. And the hardest part, as you guys know, is your college years, usually because I went away to school to Vanderbilt and your father stayed at the University of Oklahoma. Usually that can be the deal killer. That's where you split part ways and you try to stay in touch Christmas holidays spring break and then it just sort of fades away and it didn't with your father and then I went from Vanderbilt to the Miami Herald and I went to the Los Angeles Times and I went to Dallas to be a columnist and through all those stops I stayed very close with your father and obviously his older brothers and then he goes through times and periods of his life and I go through different relationships in my life. And yet the one constant in my life has been 
your father, and then obviously I watched you from the time you were born come up through sports, through baseball, basketball, and a little bit of football, and then obviously a whole lot of golf. And it has been my pleasure to get to know you better as you became a man and the, your, your connection to me and my connection to your family is the most lasting connection that I have in my whole life, even including my family. Your, your father, Craig, became my brother. I never was that close with my real brother or, for that matter, with my real sister, we kind of went our separate ways and came from a broken home, so that was tough. And so Craig was my rock and my anchor, and I can't tell you how many Friday or Saturday nights in high school I stayed over at Jack and Bonnie's, obviously your grandparents, and Craig's house, older brothers, Kirk and Kent, and I slept over at their house many, many Fridays and Saturdays, so I feel like I got raised almost like Craig's brother and like a little bit of a son even to your grandfather, the great Jack Hunter. Well, Skip, I really appreciate that, and kind of backing off that, let's let's go back to those high school days. Um, let's set the scene, set the scene for me. Um, in Miss Burdett's cl- English class in high school, um, and kind of explain to the listeners who may not know how that class kind of changed your life. Okay. Your father, Craig, was in that class, and so was our other close friend named Perry Littlepage. It, it was a weird class where a lot of my friends just happened by fate to get thrown into the same class. It was at Northwest Classroom High School, which in those days was a real powerhouse in sports and, and academics. It was a very, very good public high school, and it was huge. And my graduating class was 681. I'm not sure how that stacks up today, but it was a four-year school. You started as a freshman. Taft was the junior high school that was only seventh and eighth grade. And... It was my sophomore year, and at that point, I was pretty good in sports. I'd been very good at tasks, especially in basketball, and um, another one of our friends named Bruce Scott and I had been the stars of our eighth grade team, Then we went on and played um, for an AAU team in high school that got to the state finals, and we were the two stars of that. There's a big basketball camp at McGinnis High School that featured some of the best players from Texas and Oklahoma, and Bruce Scott and I went to that camp, lasted a week. It was um, conducted by the Iba family. He used to be the um, – Henry I was the head coach at Oklahoma State, and his son also played there, and they ran this camp, and I won the MVP of the camp. That, that would have been the summer, I guess it was the summer before my ninth grade year. And then when I got to high school, the, the head coach was named Don Vampel, who was just legendary. And he liked our ninth grade class so much that he decided to coach freshman basketball, which he'd never done before. So 
it was Bruce and I are still the best players, but we had several others who were starting to grow, and I had already grown. I was big early. I, I was about as big as I am now in eighth grade, so that really helped because I, I could rebound and run and shoot, and we had a eighth-grade coach named Jay Stevens who was a little crazy, but he let us shoot threes before there was even a three-point line, and that's about all I did was shoot threes that only counted two points. So we go across May Avenue to the big high school, and now I've got the legendary Don Van Poole coaching me. And from the first day of freshman practice, he did not like me. He didn't like the way I played. I shot too much. I shot too far out. He was meat and potatoes from that Henry Iba school. He played at Oklahoma State, although he played football instead of basketball. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to pound the ball into the paint and make easy twos instead of long twos, which I can't blame him for that, but we never clicked. Right. He loved my my co-star, Bruce Scott, right away. Bruce was a better passer than me and, and also a very good shooter and scorer. And that summer, Bruce began to grow and grew to 6'2", and I stayed at my 5'11", or so, right in that ballpark. So now I'm starting to have second thoughts about where my head with my sports career I did letter in baseball my sophomore year, which was very difficult to do at Northwest. So I got in the letterman's club early because the baseball coach sort of had a love-hate with me, but he knew I was I, I was good at baseball. Had a lot of tools, had a big arm. I could run, um, and I could hit. I, I wasn't a home run hitter, but I was a line drive average. I could hit for high average, and I had good eyes, so I had good on base. So this is all to say that this is where I am in my head the first day of school of my sophomore year, and I randomly, along with your dad, get thrown into what was considered an advanced English class that just happened to be taught by the journalism teacher. It was the only class she taught outside of journalism the whole day. And she later confided to me that the only reason she took the time to teach it was she was always scouting for writing talent so that she could encourage um someone with any sort of writing ability to come into journalism because, again, that was an elective, you know, that was uh, extracurricular where she needed to recruit talent to keep the school paper in business. So the first day of school, she admitted to, she said, I need you to write me a one page book report. She said, I don't care what you choose the book and I need it by Wednesday or whatever it was. Uh, And I just want to see if any of you can write. And she was, a terror named Liz Burdett. She had big, giant black hair. She wore this sort of blazing red lipstick, and she had a very shrill, high-pitched voice. She looked a little bit like the Wicked Witch from The Wizard of Oz, except <laughs> she was she was prettier than that. She just had that sort of scary quality, and her voice had that Wicked Witch shriek to it. Right. And we were all afraid of her. So I turned, of course, I go to the school library after school and I decide, well, because I was a sports nut at that point, I'm going to pick a sports biography and this is way before you guys' time, but I picked a quarterback named Y.A. Tittle. He played at the University of Texas and then he was with the New York Giants and there was this classic picture of him in the NFL championship game. He'd just thrown a pick six and he was down on his knees in the end zone after failing to make the tackle and his helmet had gotten knocked off and blood is screaming down his nose and, and dripping off his face. And it's a classic, I think it was 
I think it was the cover of Life magazine back in the day. And I read the book in like an hour and a half, and I thought the book was terrible. It felt like the guy had written it in about an hour and a half. And it was simple and superficial, and I learned next to nothing about YA titles. And it was so disappointing that I decided, without really deciding, it just came out of my heart. I didn't write a book report. I just didn't spew out what, you know, sort of what was in the book. I wrote a review. I wrote a commentary. And it was pretty scathing. I just didn't like the book, and I was offended by it. I don't know what possessed me. I'd never written anything in my life. My parents didn't even graduate from high school. So it wasn't like I was being encouraged to write. I, I didn't get encouraged to read much, although I did read a lot on my own, but it was strictly by my choice. And this just poured out of me. And I handed it in without a second thought. And a few days passed. It seemed like it was a Friday. It might have been that Friday, but I don't know if she would have had time to grade all the papers yet. Whatever day it was, when the bell rang at the end of our hour, as we got up to leave, she announced, Skip Bayless, I need to see you up here at my desk. And your father looked at me, and Perry Littlepage looked at me like, Oh, man, what did you do? You're in trouble. And I seriously thought I was in some kind of trouble, but I could not imagine for what. And I walked up, and she didn't even say another word. There was, I didn't know her at all. And there was no, how are you doing? How do you like my class? She just announced to me, you're coming into journalism. And I was dumbfounded because it didn't come across as an ask. It came across as an order. And I thought, journalism? I've never even thought about journalism. And I told her, I have no interest. And she said, you're coming into journalism. And I said, I, I don't know anything about it. She said, you don't know, need to know anything about it. I need you to write me two sports columns a week. Because it came out twice on, I think, Tuesday and Friday, the paper did. And I said, I don't know anything about all that stuff, writing headlines, editing copies. You don't have to do any of that. And I, I knew they had these things called folding parties where they got together twice a week. The staff did to actually fold the papers so that they could put them out because they came in big sheets off the press. And she said, you don't have to come to the folding parties. You don't have to do anything but write me two columns. She said, you can write. And that moment changed my life. I have no idea where, where I would have gone because I had no plan. Again, I had no parental guidance. Nobody had ever said, are you going to college? I hadn't even thought about going to college. And Elizabeth Burdett changed all of that. And I got right into journalism. I didn't take the class that year until I was a junior, but I started writing columns. And then she would encourage me to write movie reviews, which I did. And then she would encourage me to do feature stories on other things. And some of them she sent to the Daily Oklahoman because they had a team page. And I got several things published on the team page of the city paper, what was then called the Daily Oklahoman, now just the Oklahoman. And I was in awe that she believed in me. And she didn't really seem to believe in anybody but me. She was scathing 
in her critiques of everybody. She would just scream things out in the middle of the, the journalism department and just call people on the carpet and just tear them apart, shred them in front of everybody. But I never got one of those talking to's or dressing down. And she, she encouraged everything that I tried to do. And then she shocked me. She entered me before my senior year in a scholarship competition at Vanderbilt University called the Grantland Rice Scholarship. And it's a full ride. I don't know if it still is today, but Grantland Rice was the first syndicated sports columnist in this country way back in the 30s and 40s. He was a national institution. He made a lot of money, and he had gone to Vanderbilt, and he left a huge endowment there for this one sports writing scholarship a year. The irony is Vanderbilt doesn't even have a, a journalism program, and yet it's sponsored by what's called the Thoroughbred Racing Association because Grantland Rice was, was a legendary horse racing writer, so they sort of oversaw it, and she entered me in it sight unseen. All she told me, she said, you have to apply to Vanderbilt because you, you need to be accepted to Vanderbilt before you can be eligible to win the scholarship. Well, I was thinking of going to OU. I was thinking maybe of SMU in Dallas. And I didn't even know what Vanderbilt University was. I'd, I'd heard of it through sports a little bit. I knew it was like the doormat of SEC football, but that's all I really knew about it. I'd never seen it. Didn't even have any view of it in my head. And I forgot about it, except I did apply, and I did actually get accepted, and I still don't know how. I did make very good grades. I guess my SAT score was pretty good, um, but I don't even have any I, – I didn't do the pre-SAT like kids do today. I didn't prep for it. I just went and took it on a Saturday morning at, again, at McGinnis High School, which was weird. I almost overslept for it because we had a football <laughs> game the night before, and I barely made it. In fact, I was maybe one minute late, and one of the McGinnis nuns at the Catholic school shook her, you know, like shook her head sideways at me, like, you're late, but I'm going to give you a break. And she handed me the, the lead pencil and the pamphlet to say the SAT, and I just scrambled to catch up with the other kids. And I must have done okay. I don't even know what the score was. But I sent it all the way to Vanderbilt, and I got accepted. And then time passed. They don't pick it until May. So it's one of those things where I'm I'm almost to graduation thinking I'm going to OU probably. And one day I came home from American League baseball practice and my mother always, she was rarely there. She always left me something in the oven. Usually we, we my family owned a little sort of hole in the wall barbecue restaurant on the south side of Oklahoma City. And my mother worked there with my father quite a bit. So she would leave me called the hickory house she would leave me barbecue sort of food like ribs or ham or whatever in the the oven on low and so i came in from baseball practice and she had left me a note on the kitchen table and it said call area code 615 and as soon as i saw that that's nashville tennessee and my first thought was i won that scholarship, won scholarship unbelievable right. and once again my life has changed and it has nothing to do with me it's, it's like, thank you, God. And I called back, and the man said, congratulations. We need to know by tomorrow morning whether you're going to excel. And I was horrified because I was dating a girl at the time who was a year behind me named Liz, who I actually married. She was my first wife. And 
we were very close and, and I couldn't imagine leaving because I never thought, I, I never traveled anywhere. I never thought about leaving Oklahoma City. And yet I called her immediately. And the more I talked about it, the more I knew I just have to go. I have no choice. I've got to, to just pick up stakes and go because it's too great. It's a full scholarship. In those days, it was 25000 and that would cover all four years of room, board, and tuition, So, and food. It, it also covered the cafeteria food if you choose to eat in the cafeteria. So it was, it was huge. It's Vanderbilt. It's, it's such a great school. And because of Elizabeth Burdett, I went away to Vanderbilt, and it was simply the greatest thing that ever happened to me. The people I met um, – I majored in English and history. It was great for what I was, it was great background for me. And it was also a great springboard in what was a very tight job market in those days to get my first job at the Miami Herald. So I know that's a long story, but that's the God's truth of how I got into this business to start with. It was because she forced me into this business. Cool, cool. Hey, Skip, this is Caleb Price, by the way. I'm yes, Caleb. one of Sam's good buddies. We appreciate you dropping on, and that's, I got it. that's a cool little background of where you're at today. Um, but yes, sir. I kind of noticed some, some similar things when you talk about yourself and Craig and, um, and Sam and I. There's, there's a few things that we kind of share that I don't really have an exact story of why we're friends, but I know we're, we have – a few things in common and I know it's our faith and we both love golf and yep. we both love basketball and, <laughs> and true. There you go. And sports in that general. So, um, yep. so that's pretty cool. But you know, me and Sam play quite a bit of golf with each other and that's kind of our biggest common ground besides thunder basketball, which we don't have going yep. on. Um, but I just kind of had a quick question of, um, I got to know what's your handicap and, and how often do you get to play <laughs> Um, with with this being kind of your profession um, on TV and and in sports world and whatnot, my handicap is golf. <laughs> it's always been my handicap. It has been the most frustrating, tormenting, haunting game ever there was. You guys are way better at it than I ever was. I came to it a little late in in. Maybe Craig and I tried to play with his older brother, Kirk, maybe in eighth grade, but just a little bit. I didn't really get going until I was maybe a junior in high school. No lessons, all public course, Hefner, Lincoln Park. Um, and I have no idea what my handicap would be right now, probably 12 or 14, somewhere okay. in there. Okay. I've been maybe as low as – is an eight back in my Dallas days when I was playing at Las Colinas Country Club. I got to play a little more and I just had more focus on it. And I'm pretty sure I was carrying an eight at one point there. But I I saw the end of the. Do you guys know the movie The Legend of Bagger Vance? By oh, yeah. Yep. Yep. Okay. With Will Smith. Oh, yeah. Um, that movie always touches me at the end. And there's a line at the end about golf isn't a game that's meant to be won. It's just meant to be played. And that's how I feel about it. It's the hardest game in the world. It, it's impossible to hold on to because, as you guys know way better than I do, you can find it and then 
for reasons inexplicable, you can just lose it for no no comprehensible reason. You just lose it. Mm-hmm. And you go out when you think you're hot and you're not. And something goes wrong. Something's wrong with your stroke, your putting stroke, or suddenly you can't chip it, or suddenly your driver, it, it just goes sideways and you can't figure it out. And that's why I keep playing it. And I guess it's given me more pleasure maybe than playing any other sport. I still play a good bit of basketball. I only play one-on-one because it's too dangerous to play five-on-five with people you don't know or four-on-four or three-on-three. I've toured on twice. I play one-on-one with people I know that I can trust, and it's a great competition because it's just you. Again, I never was a very good passer, so I guess if I play (laughs) one-on-one, I don't have to worry about passing. And I like to shoot, so I can shoot as much as I want. But I also always love to play defense. And even my senior year of high school, when I did play a good bit for a team that made it to the state finals, I was always the defensive ace. And if we played against a hot scorer, I played a lot on that score. So I love one-on-one because I enjoy the defensive side of it. And and basketball comes much easier to me than golf. And so – I, I still go. Sometimes I just go and shoot by myself, and I can still scorch it. I can get going just right away. I can pick it up. I don't ever lose my my shot. It's more of a set shot than a jump shot. But I'll play anybody in three-point course right now. I don't care who you are. I'll go play you right now. If we <laughs> stay outside the three-point line and just play horse, uh, you're going to have a hard time with me because I can shoot it. But, I love it. But, but golf, I don't know. I have no idea. I can get going sometimes, and Sam knows my game, and every once in a while I played with Sam and his father. It was the last day. I was in Oklahoma City last July, or maybe it was August, I think it was, and we played at Lincoln West, and Sam always plays great. He just tears the course apart. It's actually too short for Sam. I'm pretty but sure he had a hole in one on a par four that day. <laughs> it, it, it was that was another year. It blows but my mind. On number, on number, let's see, eleven. Yes, number That's eleven. Yeah, yeah, it's a par four. And Down the you hill. You can't see yeah. the green. You can't see it from the tee. And Sam just like flies it on the green, and I we didn't see how it went in. I don't know. For all I know, he flew it in the cup. I don't know, but it went in. <laughs> That's what we'll go we with. Couldn't find his, mm-hmm. Yeah, we couldn't find his ball. <laughs> like, so, for the record, <laughs> I do have a two on that hole. I don't have a one. I do wow. have a two on that hole. No, for the right. record. Well, two is, two is very good. <laughs> Skip, um, Skip yeah. while we're on the subject of Lincoln mm-hmm. Park, um, I mean, you come back every year and you always want to play Lincoln. Why does it hold yep. such a special place in your heart? It does because from where we grew up, it was far away. It was on the northeast side of town, and that was considered at the time, and I've lost touch with Oklahoma City, but it was more of a black neighborhood in those days. And it was always amazing to me and refreshing to me that so many black people played golf because it was in an era in the 60s when black people didn't seem to be playing that much golf except at Lincoln Park and again I never left Oklahoma City until I went to Vanderbilt but I I felt more comfortable there because so many I, I didn't see any black women playing yet with all black men 
but so many black men played there that I loved it because it felt like come one, come all. And right. the black men loved golf so much and, and they were so much fun to be around or occasionally you join up with, with a couple two or three. And so it, it became dear in, to my heart. It, it, it has a big place in my heart. And plus, it's the greatest piece of real estate in Oklahoma City because it's hilly and it's so rare. I don't know what happened to the landscape there, but as you guys know, there's twin hills across I-35. It also has some of that little landscape because it's it's a beautiful little plot of ground that's rolling. So it it the, the design of the two 18 holes, the east and the west, is clever and distinctive where, where you get a lot of fun shots a lot of big dog legs left and right and blind shots and up the hill and down the hill shots in the west course as you guys know because you know sam had to play it obviously in, in for a lot of tournaments and a lot of qualifiers it's a good golf course mm-hmm. it's, a it's really way better than the east yep. golf course it's way better than the east the east is fun to me because that's where we all started right right and I don't know why, but of all the golf courses I've ever played in my life, the East fits my eyes the best. And I've had many of my best rounds on the East. I told you I'd be like a 10 or 12 handicap, and I can go play. And that plus the East is so short, you can play it all the way back. And I'll, I've had days where, where I got hot and shot par on the East because it's just easy to me. Right. And I know all the shots, and I feel good with all the shots. The West is a little bit harder, but I've had some good rounds on the West, too, and it's in such great condition for a public golf course that I'm just happy. And now we've gotten to the point where if I come back and have five days to play golf, and I know last summer we played the East and the West all five days, and I was <laughs> totally awesome. content. That's great. Um, Skip, going back to uh, to journalism, you know, um, You've never been afraid to speak your mind, to say the least. Uh, where where did that fearlessness come from? Um, I mean, you've battled the likes of T.O., Richard Sherman, T-Sizz, you know, and Mark Cuban. You're never afraid, whoever it is, if you're sitting there face-to-face to speak your mind. Um, where did that fearlessness kind of come from? That's a great question, and I'm not sure I know, but... I was always a crusader for the truth. Even when I got in arguments with your father or Perry in high school, if I believed in something, I would not back down. In the one area in which your father and I, Sam, where we clash is he is very stubborn, what I would call bullheaded, as you know. And I can be in different ways, very dug in, will not back down, will not back off stubborn Mm -hmm. and so we would get into sports arguments that were pretty silly and and we might not speak to each other for the next three days (laughs) and it it started there but even when when I was in grade school I fought a lot and my neighborhood was a weird one It's, it's the Mayfair Elementary School District 
And it was this weird cross-section of some people with money and some people with no money. And so there were a lot of kids in my classes who were close to poverty, that they were, there were a bunch of post-World War II houses built on many of those streets on the big side of that school district that are little tiny two-bedroom, one-bathroom houses. And I don't know exactly what their father did, but they were struggling and they didn't have money and they were tough white kids. It was, it was obviously an all white neighborhood. And I fought a lot and I got in a lot of posts, you know, after school fights and it was always over what's right. What, no, that's not right. And we, we, play, you know, whatever, softball or flag, not flag football, we play touch football after school. Sometimes we play tackle football with no pads on after school. And it seemed like every one of those games ended in some kind of fight where I thought I was right. (laughs) And I won a lot of the fights, and I got whipped a couple of times. One time I really got whipped. I got my nose broken by a kid named Jamie Staley. I'll never forget it. I was in fifth grade, and I just got splattered by Jamie Staley. He's a new kid in school, and he actually came from some money. And yet, I'm, I'm a battler by nature. I, I, like to, I like to argue. My wife, Ernestine, will tell you I'm, I drive her crazy because I will argue in a good way. Not, not that we're going to like not speak, but, but I will stand my ground. And with her, I have to kind of like back off a little bit and try to compromise a little bit more. It's just not going to work. Right. And yet, once I got into to the media, I, I wanted to truth tell. I wanted to crusade, and it comes a little bit from faith that, that I believe that that's why God put me on the earth was to fight for what was right, what was the truth, even in the world of sports. Mm-hmm. And we have another friend who played football at the University of Oklahoma that Sam knows a little bit named Grant Burgett. He was a very good – he was the player of the year in Oklahoma. This is way back when, 1970. But he was a starting halfback at Oklahoma in the wishbone. And we were close. And then in college, my summer before my senior year at Vanderbilt, I was an intern at what was then called the Daily Oklahoman. And I would see Grant in the summers. He built up to his senior year to, to be a starting halfback. And – and when I was working for the Oklahoma, they let me do everything. So I was doing features on a lot of big people. Um, I, I could go on and all the different people, people who come through town to visit or play in pro-am golf tournaments, whatever. They just let me write about everything. And one time I wrote a, a big piece on somebody, and Grant Burgett, that night I saw him after the piece had run, and he said, you know, that was interesting, and he asked me, so what's he really like? And it really offended me. And I said, well, I, I wrote what he's really like. Oh, well, you can't right. do that. And, and Grant was always dealing with the media, and he's taught by Barry Switzer, the, the coach at the time. you got to be careful with the media. you got to go into player speak. you know, you got to hide behind cliches. And, and so Grant's thinking that, that I have to write cliches. And that I have to stay on the surface. And he wanted to know what so and so was really like. It's somebody I don't know if you guys it's way before your time, but it, I did a piece on a, 
um, basketball star of the day named John Havlicek for the Boston Celtics. Are oh, you guys yeah. familiar? Oh, yeah. Havlicek stole okay. the ball. You, you got it. Yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> you know your background. So he was the driving force for those Celtics championship teams, and he came to Quail Creek in Oklahoma City to play in in a pro-am that I can't remember what the – it was a big charity event. I don't remember exactly what it was. It wasn't the there, – there used to be a tour stop in Oklahoma City that played at Quail Creek, you know, PGA Tour stop. Mm-hmm. And Arnold Palmer I saw play there one year. But this was something different. Anyway, so the Oklahomans said, hey, John Havlicek's there. See if you can go find him and, and do a piece with him. And they had just won the championship, I believe, that previous year. Mm-hmm. And I did. On a Saturday morning, I tracked him down after he – finished his round and he was very gracious and sat with me in the clubhouse and gave me what I thought was a terrific interview into his psyche and what propelled him and what drove him because he was a little bit of an overachiever and he just played harder than everybody else and so anyway so Grant asked me what's John Havlicek really like I I said Grant I I wrote it and that stuck with me and has driven me my whole career what's he really like so now i'm in a very different format a debate format but i'm constantly trying to tell you what i believe is truly going on and what so-and-so is really like now we're talking about last dance michael jordan i was blessed i was there i was the columnist of the chicago tribune in 1998 and i got to know jordan and i had big sit down one-on-one interviews with jerry krauss and phil jackson as that season wound down. And now I can talk about that and I can tell you what I believe Michael Jordan was truly, really, really like Grant Burgess. You know, like this, this is what I do for a living now is I tell you what things are really like. And of course, then we debate, okay, well, if, if he could be merciless and heartless and ruthless as a, a motivator to his teammates, is that a good thing or a bad right. thing? And Skip, well, I thought it was yep. a great thing. His teammates knew that he did care about all of them, but he was going to pick on their weaknesses and try to make it a strength for their playoff run. Right. And it kept working with all those little guys who became big players in the postseason. So I don't have any problem with it at all. But, again, I'm crusading for what I believe to be the truth. Right. Do you think that – during your time in Chicago, I know you spent a lot of time around MJ. Do you think um, he respected you because uh, you spoke, like, your mind, you know? I think he loved me because the first big piece I wrote was about Jerry Krause, and it was pretty scathing because I thought Jerry Krause was a silly little man who was trying to be a really big man. And he was literally little, and then he was about sure. five, six maybe, <laughs> a, little, a pudgy little man, non-athletic. But they said he played high school baseball. I just couldn't see no it. No shot. <laughs> no, it, it just doesn't look like he could have played high school baseball. That's what his bio always said. But he did he, – he had a good feel for basketball. He had a pretty good feel for who could play. He did hire Phil Jackson out of obscurity what was called the CBA, the Continental Basketball Association, where he had won championships with the Albany Patroons. But Phil had turned on him, and Michael definitely had turned on him. So when I wrote a scathing piece after a big sit-down with Jerry Krause, a, a, a piece that Jerry Krause was 
furious about and told me so to my face one day after a game in Charlotte, said, you hurt me and you hurt my family. I said, Jerry, you're a very public figure and you're on the verge of going down as the biggest villain in the history of sports <laughs> if you fire Phil Jackson after this year and Michael goes with him. And I said, what, what are you doing to the Bulls family? It's, it's your petty little ego that you're, you're going to run Phil out of town and then turn Michael and whatever. That, that piece Jordan loved. And so he gravitated to me and began to warm up to me because he knew I got it. And he knew I was not afraid. And Michael liked people who were smart and fearless. And I must say, I, that was just a blessing for me because he didn't like a lot of the media. And he was really good to me as far as giving me time and, and telling me what, what I think he really thought. That's so, awesome. Yeah, I had a lot of insight through the last dance that, that I believe a lot of people didn't have in the Chicago media. Yeah, that's cool. Obviously, we're all dialed into it right now too. It's been it's been cool to watch, and Jerry does not look good in the documentary. <laughs> no, hey, no, so he does not. Um, I'm a baseball guy. I I played college baseball at Oklahoma Christian yep. uh, University, mm-hmm. and I heard you bring up baseball a little bit. And I'm gonna circle back. You had mentioned growing up um, some Legion ball, and I was just curious of of what Legion that may be of of what it was back in your day versus mine because I come from a Legion ball background. It was pretty big whenever I was coming through high school, but that was the last few years that Legion ball was really the real deal. It it kind of broke apart and it's become more of a, of a travel ball age and a, and a showcase Mm. age, but Legion ball used to be where it was at whenever we were coming through high school. So I was curious of, of what team you may have played for in the area. American Legion baseball was it. during my high school years. It was all there was after high school baseball. And it felt even bigger to me than actual high school baseball. As you guys know, it can be a little chilly in Oklahoma in March, even in April. Whoever decided to play high school and college baseball in February and March was I don't know. But I played some miserably cold games. It was not fun, as you guys know. The bat feels like it's full of bees when you yeah. hit the ball. Looking for and a walk. <laughs> so I look forward more to the, the summers of American Legion, and it was loaded. And the way it was in the state of Oklahoma was it, it was actually regional, and our league was packed with teams from Stillwater, yeah. Enid, Shawnee. Um, it was, there must have been – I don't know, 12 or 14 teams, and mine just happened to be called Sequoia Mills because they were our sponsor. I have no idea what it was or why it was, but that's what we were called. And my my high school baseball coach was also legendary, and I had a love-hate with him. He rode me so hard. You can talk about Jordan being merciless on Scotty Burrell. I mean, this, his name was Winston Havenstrike. God rest his soul. He passed a couple of years ago. But he was always all over me, but he loved me and thought he, he once told our team when I was a junior that if I wanted to, I could be the best hitter in the state. That was quote unquote. And it shocked me because I was getting so into journalism at that point. 
you know, I was always a good student. I finished second in that class of 681, um, just a complete overachiever. I don't know why. I just really, I worked at it. And I lost out to be the, um, let's see, what do you call it? The second salutatorium, you know. Um, Valedictorian. Whatever it's called. Anyway, I was second in my class because uh, (laughs) there's a a girl named Justine Coyle who went to Harvard and became an anesthesiologist in Oklahoma City, I believe. But Justine did not take, I was told, driver's ed. And I did take with with Sam, with your dad, driver's ed one summer after our our freshman year, I guess. and I made a B because they didn't give A's in driver's ed because they didn't want to give any kid an A and make them think, you know, get too cocky and think that they were really a hot shot driver. <laughs> so I, I made a B in driver's ed and it cost me, I'm pretty sure I never went to the powers that be at the school, but I know I finished second to her and that was the only B that I made. So <laughs> the, the point was that, let's see what, Help me out. What were you, where were we going with this? Um, what was your, oh, it was about American Legion. Okay. Legion baseball. So, yeah, okay. So the point was I was getting more and more into journalism and into school. And when he told the team that, it shocked me. And now if I have any regret about my athletic career, I wish I'd applied myself even harder to baseball because I did have a good stroke, a good short, quick, strong stroke, and – he would meet me on a lot of Saturdays when we didn't have to do anything. And he would pitch batting practice to me and I would just hammer away, just hit line drives. And I started the first game of my, my junior year at shortstop. And I came right out of basketball and he, he started me the first game at shortstop. I'd never played anything in my life, but catcher. And don't ask me why, but I always played catcher from the time I was in second grade. But we, we played baseball, organized baseball in second grade, and I was the catcher from the start because I had a good arm. I don't know why I didn't pitch. I tried pitching one time in eighth grade when I'd been chosen athlete of the year in eighth grade. In that summer, um, it wasn't yet American Legion. It was still like YMCA, but right. I – I pitched one game for that coach that we had named Jay Stevens, and I was really great. And I don't know why. I was really sore the next day, and I never tried it again, but whatever. So American Legion was – it was loaded with people who went on to play pro baseball. And it's way before your time. I, you guys have probably never heard of Daryl Porter, but he was – you could look him up. He played at Southeast High School, yeah. and he was a great football basketball and especially baseball player and he was my age and I played against him all the way up in every sport and that year he was the state player of the year in football and definitely in baseball and he got drafted fourth overall by the Brewers and so um, my that last year I went back to playing catcher he was a catcher and he was the – you could look this up. I think he was the World Series MVP in 1985 for the St. Louis Cardinals. That's how good he was. But, uh, again, I had my ill-fated run at shortstop my junior year just because we had a catcher who was a senior who was really good. 
Then I played catcher my senior year. And then in American Legion, after that, Daryl left to, to go play minor league baseball. I think he went to Des Moines to start out in double A. And his rise to the Brewers was very quick. And it opened up a space for me. So I made all region in American Legion after my senior year. So that was the highlight and height of my sort of sports career, if you will. Yeah, he was World Series champion in 82, World Series MVP in 82, NLCS MVP in 82. Yeah. Wasn't he something else in 85? Is something they did something? Maybe I'm thinking they won in 85. He was a four-time All-Star. Okay. Pretty solid. He's he, he was the starting catcher in the All-Star game, I believe, in like 1980 or 81. 80, I think it was. That's What What so year anyway, did you say he got drafted? Because it said he made his debut in 71. 70. So, yeah, that's a pretty year. fast track. To I mean, it was a fast track. Wow. And believe it or not, not to be morbid about this, but he was always troubled. He wrote a book about his struggles with drugs, and I thought he had whipped it. I got to know him. Um because he played for the Texas Rangers at the end of his career, and I was in yeah. Dallas. Mm-hmm. And he was having all kinds of issues with cocaine, and he finally ended up overdosing on cocaine, and he died in Kansas City after his career was over. But he was becoming a broadcaster for the Royals oh, and wow. had a lot of talent in broadcasting, and he overdosed on cocaine, and we lost him. Wow. Skip, um, let me touch on this okay, American gotcha. Legion baseball real quick because oh. that hit home because – I just you kept saying about being freezing cold. I don't understand why they played games in February and March, but we did. Um, But that's what I'm thinking back about American Legion baseball and just thinking of if kids were to play it today. We played like I want to say 85 or 90 some odd games that summer, and I remember it being the best summer of my life. We're playing doubleheaders every day, and we didn't necessarily have a quote unquote summer. But for some reason, we had so much fun playing, and and that's why Legion Baseball kind of – I heard you say it earlier, and I was like, man, I'm going to circle back to that because that's what made me the player that I was, and I wasn't much. I was the the worst player on our Legion team probably, and we were stacked. But that's what kind of prepared me for college is because we're playing all these prospects all summer long, and, you know, it's a – Either you get better or you get left behind type of situation. So that was that was a fun summer for us, but that's what it's it's so much different now. There's you know, the Legion baseball is from what I know, I think is done in Oklahoma. Um the team that is I played really? for was the Oklahoma Outlaws, it was post one seventy. And we had a legendary coach, Doug Weiss, and he was a military guy and kind of same those all all those same attributes as he was always all up in us and, and demanded a lot and even, you know, as young as we are, I'm 28, but he was so old school that we had to show up with a fresh shaven face. We had to have yep. all be wearing the same thing. Practice started, you know, at this certain time. And if somebody was late, everybody ran and, you know, it was, but this is summer ball and he was, you know, treating it like a college program, but really that's what kind of um, made a lot of us better. But, you know, we, there's something about having a coach that everybody has a love hate with that brings the team closer together because you're busy complaining yep. about the coach together the whole summer that you're <laughs> it, growing closer as a team. But yeah, we, we won a lot of games that summer and, and played a lot of good players and 
a lot of good stories. And, and like I said, that's probably the best summer uh, that I can remember that I had. And it's just funny to think about that. We played 90 baseball games in a summer and yep. enjoyed it. So, right. well, as you say, baseball was meant to be played in hot weather. Yes. And I also get offended when we roll all the way around the clock to, and I'm not sure how it's going to go this year, but then we get to October and they're playing the, the World Series, and it often gets played in freezing cold weather, and it's just wrong. It's just hard to watch. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Skip, you know, like you've always been um, – well, even from the start, you, you had a show with Stephen A. called Old School, New School, but yep. – um, but it's ironic that you were the old school part of that because you're so in tune with the new school uh, culture these days. Like, um, how do you stay so in tune and resonate with people my age or even younger and also resonate with people um, my dad's age and older, you know? So I was I was just curious how you um, kind of resonate with both, both groups. I used to kid Stephen A., you're more old school than I am, even though I don't know how much younger he is. I'm not even sure what it is. Um, but he's, I don't know, is it 15 maybe, or 18 years younger? But you don't like I think it, I've always, Well, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, I think in a good way, I've always had a lot of little kid in me. And I still have a little kid's excitement to watch the next game. Obviously, right now, we don't have any games to watch. And it has torn my heart and soul out because it has made me appreciate just how much sports always meant to me. I couldn't have ever imagined a single day or night without live sports. It It would just be impossible if you'd asked me six months ago. No, there's no way we'd ever not have sports. And now we haven't had sports for whatever it's been three months, and we're still not sure exactly what we're going to get in the next three months. But in the end, that little kid in me, I don't know. Um, You know, now I'm married to a woman named Ernestine, as Sam knows, and she didn't want to have kids, and I've never wanted to have kids because I thought I was enough kid myself i never thought i was responsible enough to raise kids because i'm also very married as Ernestine will tell you to my work and i'm obsessed with it and i live it 24 7 and and to a fault it's, it's really all i care about is my work and ernestine and sometimes she slides to 1a and it's no good and i try to get her back to number one and yet because we don't have kids, I think it keeps the kid in me alive. Sometimes my friends I'll see raise their kids and they, they want to become a dad. So their whole mentality becomes dad mentality. And I didn't do that. And so I love all my Jordans, my sneakers. Oh yeah. And I live in them. Now I don't even own a pair of dress shoes. I don't even have a pair. I just wear sneakers wherever I go, I wear them with, sno- with suits. And I, I still really love to play basketball and obviously golf. A lot of older people play golf. But it, it's just I, – I think my love for sports has kept me psychologically younger. 
because I, I still look at them the same way I do. I, I still get anxious and crazy excited for big games, big basketball, big football games, just the way I did with your father, Craig, when we were a little kid, you know, seventh and eighth grade. We just lived to watch the Super Bowl or right. some big – he loved the Cincinnati Reds. I loved the St. Louis Cardinals. So if they ever played, we only had games on the weekends. Then. We didn't have them every night. You, you only got like the game of the week on a Saturday. And we just lived for those games. And I still live for those games. And I don't know why, but I meet a lot of kids, especially when we take our show on the road white kids, black kids, Asian kids, kids of any color, and even the kid kids, like the high school kids, a lot of college kids, but the, the, the 14, 15-year-old kids really connect with me because we share passion for sports. Absolutely. And, and they know I'm, I just got a lot of little kid in me because I'm liable to go berserk <laughs> on undisputed after some big controversial finish to a game just the way they do with their friends after right. the game exactly that was a lot and of sam's so, sam's kind of idea yeah. for the pod is is that's what we do we sit and talk about sports that's and true. we yell at each that's other true. and sit around and yep. it's fun so we're like hey let's let's lock it up on a pod but hey so i'm curious yep. whenever you hoop do you hoop in your jordans because they're not very comfortable i'm a jordan guy <laughs> I know they're not really built to play basketball. No, they're they're for show. Um, I do like my Jordan brand, the the futures. Do you guys know the oh, futures? Oh yeah, the futures yeah. are comfortable. They, they look, they're very comfortable. I wear a lot of them with suits because they're they're not as sort of spectacular as some of the the Jordans numbers right. with numbers after them, and some of them are are so sort of wild looking with their colors that they don't really match up with suits. I but the you. futures really work with suits and the futures really work to hoop in. They don't have the greatest support for your ankles, but they're like dreams to play in. So I play one on one in my futures. And okay. I got a bunch I'm looking at my rack right now. I got maybe that's what I'm a ten different pairs. Yeah, mm -hmm. the futures are definitely for comfort. I got a couple of pair of I don't even know what they call them, just trainer type shoes that yeah. for comfort. Mm -hmm. But I'm an eleven guy. I got the elevens in every colorway. But that's what they're my, beautiful. I'm my, looking at mine right now. Yeah, I'm the, I'm a one guy. Yeah, I'm gonna be. Are you really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But, but the ones are the worst to try to play. Oh basketball. my gosh, they're no, flat footed. Yeah, they're just the worst. Yeah. Yeah. I played my senior year in the bread elevens and. Oh, it was they, they killed my yeah. feet, but they looked so yeah. good <laughs> that I could not yeah. play in them. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, and I I hate to admit this publicly, but New Balance to me, the oh, new no. Kawhis, <laughs> oh, and no. they gave them to me, and they're so comfortable that I have played in them a couple of times. <laughs> They're they're like the orangey. They're they're like orange pink. I'm looking at them right now, but they fit like gloves, and they're a good ride. And so I've actually played some in them. And I hope lightning doesn't strike me. And forgive me, Michael, um, but I have played in them, and they do work. And I I've run a lot, and I still run a lot. Um, just run for you know distance for exercise, and. For years, I've run in New Balance shoes, and I still can't believe New Balance came out with a 
sneaker, but it's a good one. And they are very good shoe makers as far as the kind of shoe that you would actually run in or play basketball in or do something athletically in some workout thing. That's what New Balance does. So I think they're, they're, they're not about style, although these are stylish. I do like the look of them and yet the Jordans are it. And it's still amazing to me that Michael Jordan basically retired in 1998. I know he came back from two last hurrahs at age 38 and 39 with the, Washington team but but still he's really been gone since 98 and he's more popular than ever because it's got to be the shoes the shoes yeah yep. New Balance couldn't have found a more perfect guy for their shoes than Kawhi <laughs> <laughs> you're right also hey they, that's the same in baseball New Balance kind of low-key owns the the baseball scene as really? far as their cleats oh, so I actually I, okay I sell that's my profession is i sell sporting goods and equipment i just here here in the state but baseball wise everybody loves the look of the nikes but they're the worst baseball cleat and i'm a nike guy obviously i sell more new balance baseball cleats to teams than anything so they're they're definitely in comfort yeah it's it's very interesting so along with the uh kind of new age stuff that we're talking about we were just curious what would your music playlist look like? So say you take off for a run in the morning. Um, what's going on your headphones? Okay, because I came from the era that your father grew up in. I'm still a 60s rock and roll guy. So anything that there are a thousand groups that everybody knows, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, but there are a whole lot of other groups like Three Dogs Night or Right. Um, mamas and papas i can go on and on all of it I, all of still, it's going over my head i, I got it i grew I'm up listening to it with to my dad that. yeah you did mm-hmm. you couldn't help it mm-hmm. but i became before i got to know them a big nelly fan nellyville and everything that broke through and country grammar yes Shout and out Brock <laughs> yep and i became a big Lil wayne fan with that carter name it one two three four and I have had the privilege and honor to become friends with both of them. So they, I, I still love everything that they have done. And Wayne just seems to get better and better. And he did the theme song for Undisputed. And I still say it's one of the great recordings ever. And people laugh at me, but I, that it's a song called No Mercy that opens our show every morning. And oh, has yeah. four years. Yeah. And, and it plays in my head, in my ears every morning. And I don't sing it to myself, but it goes in my head. And I find through the day, through the afternoon, it, it'll be, you know how a song plays in your head and you can't get it out. Right. It's fixed in your head. And I hear him, no mercy. And, <laughs> and it's just like playing in my head because it's so great. And it's so on point. And if you ever really listen to the lyrics of no mercy, it just nails the spirit and the essence of what Undisputed is all about. And it describes me and my partner, Shannon Sharp, just beautifully, perfectly, because Wayne is obviously a genius lyricist and a a genius creator. And everything is so special and so different. And so many songs that you just say, how did he do that and that Mm -hmm. and that? Well, that's what kids Kids nowadays are obviously growing up on Drake and... I'm a Drake guy. Yeah. He's he's yeah. awesome, but 
that's another thing that Sam and I share is we're both huge Wayne guys. When I was yep, coming through high school yep. is whenever he brought out No Ceilings, and yep. I played it tapes. over yep. and over and over <laughs> again, and everything was a banger. So I'm a I'm a yep. Wayne is the GOAT guy if if we start that argument, but Drake yep. is obviously phenomenal. He Drake relates um, just musically to each and every – buddy more so probably than wayne but i, I got it wayne's I, I lyrics are that. second to yep. none yeah no yeah no yep. doubt no doubt they a, are just got a couple more questions for you skip mm-hmm. uh you know you being um your age and at, like all the uh all the uh requirements that your job requires and the preparation and um and the early morning wake-ups and everything else that goes along with undisputed and doing what you do at a high level, the best level. Um, what motivates you at your age to continue getting up every day, putting that work in um, to um, succeed? Live TV is a lot like golf. It's unwinnable. Right. You can't be perfect because it's just too fast. It's too hot. It, it's too hard. It, it's it's very rare that I like a show that I do because it's too long. It's two and a half hours. And so I constantly think, ah, I should have done that or I should have tried that or we should have tried that topic instead of that topic. And I burn and just rage with the challenge of it every day because I still haven't been able to perfect it because I think it's imperfectible. And I learn more and more about the craft of it every day. And I'm still just on fire with it. And I love the format of being able to do what you guys just said. You're doing the pod because it's what you do in real life. And I don't do that in real life the way I used to because I have to save it all up for two and a half hours. So I don't sit around. Um, I just don't have much time. I, I don't talk sports with friends. Um, in, in fact, what wears me out, just a quick aside, uh, Sam's played with me at the club I'd play with here called Brentwood Country Club, not too far from where the Fox Studios are and where I live in Century City. And it's been shut down because of the pandemic and the quarantine until this past Tuesday and the city opened it or agreed to open or let it open back up but now you you have to have tea time and before as Sam knows you could just show up and they just work you in and hey if there's a gap out between you know seven and nine you could go to eight and start on eight or whatever right you, you could just do whatever you wanted to do and now you have to practice your social distancing, you have to wear a mask, and you have to start on number one at a certain time. And so the problem is for me that you, you have to, it's like a public golf course where 48 hours before they open it up on the website and you have to jump in and try to grab a tee time. Well, the only days that Sam knows that I have any time to play, maybe a Tuesday or maybe a Thursday right after the show at 10 a.m. Pacific time, I try to run out there and maybe play nine holes, or if it's 
wide open. Maybe I can play a fast 18. Well, now I tried to play Tuesday and I put my name on the website with a, an older guy that I play with who doesn't know anything about sports. And that's why I play with him because he doesn't ask me any sports questions. Right. But <laughs> right. now, as soon as I put, you have to use your name, obviously, on the website. And once I put my name up there, two guys jumped in who I don't even know, two members, like, oh, wow, we could play with Skip Bayless. And you, you can't take carts right now unless you're really elderly. And so you, you either pull or carry your club. And so it's a little slower. So I ended up on Tuesday playing with two guys in their say, 30s, and they're both sports nuts. And we walked and carried, and they talked my ear off. I only lasted <laughs> nine holes because I just couldn't do it get anymore. Out of there. Because they're just talking my ear off, and I couldn't even think about my golf. What do you think of the last dance? When do you think sports are going to come back? Do you think the Cowboys are going to be any good next year? And it's just like driving me crazy. So I, I, when I go play golf, I don't want to talk about sports. I, I talk about it for two and a half hours a day, but I'm still on fire to do that. And I still love the challenge of debating a pro football Hall of Famer about the NFL. That's a big challenge. I love to debate Shannon Sharp about issues such as was Michael Jordan out of bounds to use some really bad words and trying to motivate Scotty Burrell because Shannon believes that he crossed lines that no man should have crossed on him. And I still defend Michael because it worked. Right. And he got oh. a lot out of a Scotty Burrell who still loves Michael Jordan and the bridge didn't get burned and he doesn't hate him. So and he it's played those like 12 kind of years in the league. Still, yeah, that's yep. true. He did. So I'm still on fire for that, and I just love what I do. And we've, we've actually been threatened here lately where there's moments where I think, gee, are we even going to be able to survive? I'm, I'm not sure anybody's going to be, you know, unless the NFL comes back in some way, shape, or form, it's starting to threaten all of these sports networks. So now I'm so grateful that I've had the ability to do this this many years, and I please God bring it back. Right. Right. And Skip, you've been a pioneer in so many different areas. Uh, just speak a little bit about where the idea came from to get into TV bef um, before your other writing peers, um, and then also to get into debate TV before your other TV peers. Those are good, hard questions. I feel like that been weird for me because by nature I'm a little more of let say a loner I'm just more quiet Sam knows that I'm more reserved unless I'm around his father and we're really going then I, I open back up and I can be very outgoing but but I like to write I still love to write I'm, I still have several books I want to write do you ever miss it and do you ever miss writing you know, I write a lot for the show more than you think. I write out every answer to every topic, and then I memorize it. Because if I write it, it'll go in my psyche, and we don't have a teleprompter. So all my thoughts that I'm filling in the debate format, they're all, they've been engraved in my psyche because I wrote down most of my answers, and then I forget it. You know, like I just wipe it out, and then 
he likes to go first on most of our topics, which is totally fine with me because I don't <laughs> mind listening carefully to what he says. And then I reorder my plan of attack. But all my thoughts are already, as I say, sort of emblazoned in my psyche because I wrote them out. I think writing really helps you be a better debater because I order my thoughts and, and I organize my thoughts in my head. And then I'm willing to go to to, to my third thought if, if it matches up with where he ends his opening salvo. And then I can get back to my first thought later. Right. But I, I feel like, yeah, I, I do miss it. I, I still, I've, I've written several things here in the last couple of years that I did. I did a big piece about my background in Oklahoma City that we put on our website. So right. anyway, I will continue to do that. Yep. But it's writing is solitary. It's lonely. It's, it's a lot of hours by yourself. And I don't mind that. Mm-hmm. But it was funny, just a quick story. I wasn't that close with my mom, but she made me do two things in my childhood that have resonated my whole life. One is to go to church. Uh, that was a rule. I could do anything I wanted on Friday and Saturday night. I stayed out late. I left a lot of friends' houses overnight on Friday and Saturday. All I had to do is be back on Sunday at 9.15 because the car is leaving and we're going to Sunday school and church whether we liked it or not. I think mostly she did that for her mother who went to our church, and so she just wanted to impress her mother that her kids would show up there. My father never went, but um, it was great for me because it did it, it, it took me down the right path. But the other thing my mother made me do because her mother made her was I took public speaking lessons when, when I was in fourth grade, fifth grade, mm-hmm. where I had to – once a week I went to this woman – who was in a wheelchair and she taught me to speak in public by she I'd have to memorize a poem or an oration and I'd have to give it to her at her house. And then they would have recitals like four times a year where you'd go to maybe a sort of a church sanctuary and the parents would all go and everybody would get up in some sort of meeting room or whatever and, and give your poem or your oration to the whole group. So, it got me very used to speaking to large groups. doesn't bother me at all. In fact, I like it. I like our shows on Undisputed when we're on the road. I light up to that more than maybe Shannon does or Stephen A. did. Mm-hmm. And I wish we had a studio audience every day, but it's not realistic to have one. Right. Certainly at 6.30 in the morning. <laughs> but that side of me started to come through early where, yeah, I could be a little bit reserved, but if you camera in front of me and the red light goes on I will come out my mother had a big personality and big charisma and she was a good public speaker and so I thank you mom for that and so right away I looked okay on tv and I could sound okay and the writing helped me deliver logical sort of arguments on tv and it started to work and then there was a show called Cold Pizza on ESPN back in the early 2000s. And in 2004, it, its ratings were just in the toilet. It was just barely hanging on. And the man who was running ESPN at that time named Mark Shapiro called me and said, hey, would you come and try to help save my show, Cold Pizza? Because he had seen me in the debate with that Sam brought up the old school, new school with Stephen A. And nobody else was really doing that. I know PPI had started. 
they don't debate the way we debate. They discuss, you know, they're like two old friends sort of kicking around a thought or an idea. Sometimes they get into it, but Stephen and I always got way into it and we loved each other. So it, it was sort of palatable and it's very important in debate that, that you do stay friendly. You don't have to be friends. I'm not what I'd call friends with Shannon, but we're friendly and he respects me. And I definitely respect him because you can't get mad. You can't go over the edge into anger or I'm going to strangle you or you're going to knock right. my teeth out. And it gets there every once in a while, right to the precipice of that. But I think we all learned early on, this will really work because it's what everybody does. Like you guys said, it's what friends do. It's what they do in the barbershop, yep. white barbershop or black barbershop or both. Right. It's what guys do. They go at it over sports and it gets your blood boiling and pumping. But as I always said about my days on first take, our motto was no punches pulled, but none thrown. So you don't pull a punch. You, you, you're still strong, but you can't throw a punch or you're going to lose your audience and lose your your partner, obviously. And so it's high-spirited, but it's always good-spirited. And that just worked for me because my heart's in a good place, but I'm a fighter by nature. So it was a good combination. And my ability to speak publicly without fear was also like a gift from God and from my mom. So early on, it worked for me. And it was a quick segue and... And I liked it better even than I do radio, and I love radio, but I didn't mind being visible, and and I still don't. And it's it's hard because it takes intense preparation and concentration, and it's it's less forgiving than radio. Radio, you can get away with more. You can't get away with it on TV. You have to be right on point, and you have to be quick and and fast and completely courageous and fearless or you'll lose your audience and so the challenge of all that is why i got into it and been into debate because debate is really hard because it's totally unscripted and you can step out of bounds very quickly and obviously you can't curse and there are certain things you can't say and you have to learn where the out of bounds are and i'm knocking on wood right here right now in my office because i'm always like thank you god for saving me because you, you get so worked up <laughs> right. in the throes of a debate that you, you tend to go almost to the edge of stepping out of bounds and you can't. And I've been blessed low these many years that <laughs> I haven't gotten suspended yet. All right. So I gotta, I gotta bring up just because I'm curious. And like you said, we love to debate and, and I know my little brother's probably going to listen to this and he's a huge LeBron guy because of his age. I don't, he's whatever he is, 25. Um, but he stands alone in our family debates every Thanksgiving or Christmas or wherever we be, because myself, my older brother, my dad, my uncle are all Jordan guys and he's a LeBron guy, but he stands his ground. But I'm curious of what are your thoughts on Space Jam 2? <laughs> um, well, I haven't seen it yet, so I don't know, but <laughs> I'm, I'm offended by the, the concept. Though. Okay. I am too. <laughs> there's only one space jam. Right. And I was, and was, I was the same way with, with Sandlot because I'm a big Sandlot yeah. guy. And to this day, yeah. I have not watched mm -hmm. Sandlot too. 
Yep. Two. So, okay. I don't. There you go. I don't even know what it's about. Yeah. <laughs> well, All right, Skip. We'll we'll let you go after this so, one last okay. question. I. Yeah. I. Uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you anything about the Cowboys because I'm such a big Eagles fan, you know, um, where do you see this Dak situation finishing out? And also, uh, what do you think about, uh, CD wearing number 88, uh, wearing Dez's number? I'll take the second one first. I don't like it. I love CD. It was a Jerryism. It was classic, vintage, weird Jerry, where he had a friend of his he played with at Arkansas on that 64 National Championship team named Jerry Lamb. So it's like Jerry Jones and C.D. Lamb combined, and somehow Jerry thought the football gods were speaking to him in that, that because Jerry Lamb wore number 88 for the National Championship team that C.D. should wear 88 for Dallas. And I hope he's right. It's a bad idea because CD <laughs> didn't want to wear it. He wanted to wear 10 in honor of his sort of high school role model hero, the guy he tried to become, which is DeAndre Hopkins, now obviously in Arizona. And he had tweeted that he was going to wear 10. I think they'd signed off on it until the owner got involved. And obviously 88 is a very hallowed number in Cowboy Nation because it's Drew Pearson and Michael Irvin at does Bryant, and it's a lot to put on a kid's head right out of the box. He's got enough pressure on him as it is. I think he'll be able to handle it and stand up to it just fine, but I thought Jerry was out of bounds on that one. And on the Dak situation, I honestly don't have a good feeling about it. It's been a year and three months in which they've been, to use Emmett's phrase yesterday, playing chicken with each other, and I believe Dak and a new agent that he has named Todd France, they're asking for absurd money, out-of-bounds, outrageous money that's way beyond what even Dak, and I'm a big fan, but even beyond what he is going to be worth to them. And because of that, Jerry has held that bottom line, and I don't blame him, but it's headed toward a long holdout that could cost them regular season games. Obviously, they scored when they picked up Andy Dalton. I don't think he's as good as as Dak, but he's not bad, and he might be a good stand-in for two or three games if it came to that, and it's feeling more and more like it's coming to that. Agreed. And as an Eagles fan, I love it because every year it's the hype and the drama, both with the Cowboys, and then they – it's like Stephen A. used to say, it's an accident waiting to yeah. happen. But I love giving yeah. Caleb a little crap about that because he's a big Cowboys yeah. fan. But I got it. Anyway, Skip, I really right, appreciate guys. your time. You Thank you so okay. much. You've been so gracious. Well, and um, you got I, it. Well, great luck with your, your new pod. I really appreciate, appreciate it. Skip, thank okay. you so much. Okay. Thank you. All right. Talk to you soon. Yeah, see you. Right. And that was Skip Bayless. Thank you so much, guys, for – coming and taking a mental vacation with us for a little bit. Thank you so much to Skip for being so gracious with his time. Um, Y'all can follow me at SamHumphreys34 on Twitter and Instagram and everything, and we're also going to get a a Twitter handle for the pod up and running soon. It might even be up and running by the time this airs. Um, But Caleb, tell them where they can find you. My social media is at CalebPrice1. Follow me. Like my Instagram pictures. I'm trying to be an influencer. 
<laughs> but anyways, I really appreciate y'all coming and listening today. God is good all the time, and you already know that it is a great day to have a great day over and out. Hit the music. Oh, I'm just doing all right, and it's a great Why?